Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are today's top stories. Senators unveil a $118 billion bipartisan border security bill. But House Speaker Mike Johnson calls it dead on arrival. What the money would be spent on. More than a dozen governors from across the country joining Greg Abbott in Eagle Pass on Sunday, showing their support to secure the border. NTD's Kelly Wright was there. Former President Trump says illegal immigration has changed election dynamics in traditionally blue states and says they could be up for grabs. The unexpected places he plans to hold rallies. A Facebook user complains an altered video unfairly paints President Biden in a negative light. Find out more about the video and how the review board ruled. Nearly a million people without power, hundreds of flights canceled as storms and floods batter California. And passengers on a nine-month world cruise go viral on TikTok and Instagram. Thousands are following their epic voyage to dozens of destinations. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. Hi, I'm David Lamb, sitting in for Chris Beers. And to begin the show, the U.S. Senate yesterday unveiled a nearly $120 billion bipartisan border security bill. The bill would also provide aid to Ukraine and Israel. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the legislation that's already facing opposition from the House of Representatives. President Biden called on Congress to unite and swiftly pass the border agreement. But House Speaker Mike Johnson declared it dead on arrival if it reaches his chamber. Johnson wrote on X that this bill is even worse than we expected and won't come close to ending the border catastrophe the president has created. The House Speaker addressed the border on NBC's Meet the Press on Sunday. The American people are done with this. The border has to be secured. And the president has the authority right now. He doesn't need another act of Congress. The bill would provide about $20 billion for border security, around $60 billion for Ukraine, about $14 billion for Israel, and $10 billion in humanitarian assistance for civilians in conflict zones, including in Ukraine, Gaza, and the West Bank. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said he would take steps to hold an initial vote on the bill on Wednesday. The bill's proponents said it would end the controversial catch-and-release practice that critics say contribute to high numbers of illegal immigrants arriving at the southern border. It would do so by speeding up rulings on asylum cases instead of quickly releasing apprehended illegal migrants and allowing them to stay in the United States for years while they await hearings. Some Republicans are skeptical of the new Senate bill. House Majority Leader Steve Scalise wrote on X that Here's what the people pushing this deal aren't telling you. It accepts 5,000 illegal immigrants a day and gives automatic work permits to asylum recipients, a magnet for more illegal immigration. Once the number of encounters reaches 5,000, expulsions would automatically take effect. Immigration is the second largest concern for Americans, according to a Reuters Ipsos poll published last week. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Thirteen governors joined Texas Governor Greg Abbott in Eagle Pass yesterday as a show of support. NTD's Kelly Wright brings us more from the southern border. 
I'm Kelly Wright in Del Rio, Texas, along the southern border between Texas and Mexico. In fact, to my left, just yards away from me, is the country of Mexico. You can see that there's fencing all the way down the borderline. And over my shoulder, this tall, tall structure here, that is the original wall that the former president of the United States, Donald Trump, wanted erected all along the border. Now, what's happening here today is the fact that so many illegal immigrants have crossed into America through the southern border. To be exact, Governor Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, states that 10 million illegal immigrants came across into America just this past year. Now, he, along with 14 other Republican governors, gathered an Eagle Pass not far from here at the border there along Mexico to state very clearly that they want something done about it. They sent a message to President Joe Biden saying enough is enough, something must be done, it's time for the president there they say, to act, to close the open border. And we are here to send a loud and clear message that we are banding together to fight to ensure that we will be able to maintain our constitutional guarantee that states will be able to defend against any type of imminent danger or an invasion. There's extraordinary danger, imminent danger, crossing our border all the time. I mean, the federal government's role uh, under the Constitution is to protect our borders, right? And if they fail to protect the borders, then states are obligated to step into that particular breach. Uh, none of this would have to happen if the federal government would simply enforce the laws that are on, already on the books. Still the greatest country on the face of the world. And we need to be thankful for that, but we also have a responsibility to protect it because I want my kids and every kid growing up in this country to get to have the same America that we're growing up in right now. But we're going to have to fight for it and protect it if that's what we want to pass down. And back live now, you can see that the governor of the state of Texas is quite concerned, along with the 14 other Republican governors who came here to stand in solidarity with him. All of them agree that something must be done. And many people that I spoke to here, they agree as well. In fact, some of the people living in Del Rio and Eagle Pass have explained to me that they believe that the federal government has failed them, has let them down in protecting them from illegal immigrants who have come into this country and caused them to lose their livelihood. Uh, ranchers, for example, talking about they lost their livestock. And just average citizens feeling that they can't walk freely through their own neighborhoods anymore because of the dangers the perils that exist from the threatening issues involving illegal drug trafficking as well as human trafficking and child trafficking. It's quite a, a mess here and the only way to clean up this mess is for Congress and state governments as well as the federal government to do something. The citizens want something done. They're actually clamoring for some action, for some change to cut down on the legal immigration issue. Reporting from Del Rio, Texas, along the Mexico border, I'm Kelly Wright. Back to you. And joining us now to discuss the Senate's proposed border deal and other options on the table is Mike Leon, host of the news commentary podcast, Can We Please Talk? Mike, welcome. How do you assess the key components of the Senate's proposed border deal? 
Well, Steph, good to see you first and foremost. Uh, you know, to Kelly's point right there at the last part of that package, he just said about Congress needs to do something about this. Senator Langford is as conservative as the, the day is long sometimes. And everyone knows that him and Chris Murphy and Kirsten Sinema, who represents a border state, have come together to put this legislation together. $118 billion that actually addresses some of the issues that Republicans and Democrats are both talking about, which is the fact that the border and CBP and ICE are understaffed and underwhelmed and they need more help. And this allocates resources for that. And you know, yet Steve we do have... had put something on Twitter. Yeah. yeah. Well, there, there is obviously there's resistance in the House and with many of the Republicans there saying it's dead on arrival unless it includes more uh, from their original border bill. How do you see this conflict playing out? Is there a chance that, you know, they could break, break through this impasse? Well, I was just about to say, because into it perfectly, because Steve Scalise is mentioning parts of the bill that Senator Langford has refuted. He was on an interview earlier this morning on another network saying that the bill doesn't allow for 5,000 people to come in. It allows for DHS an emergency uh, for the president to actually authorize closing down the border when it caps about 8,500 folks that are encountered daily. You know, CBP statistics have said that over the last fiscal year from October up until now, there's been about close to 900,000 encounters, uh, an average of about 8,200 folks that are encountered daily. This bill has provisions in place that would allow the president and Department of Homeland Security and Alejandro Mayorkas to be able to shut down the border. And the other thing that it does is is the talking point of Steve Scalise about the encounters and that it lets migrants live here freely. That is not what it does. It actually allows them to seek asylum and their interviews within a 90-day period, or if not, they are sent back to their country of origin, which this bill accommodates for up to 77 repatriation flights a day. So the problem is really now about governing. Our, to Senator Langford's point, and other Republicans have said this, Chip Roy, who's a representative of Texas, has said this. Do we want to do something about this, even though it's an election year? We have something right now that would allow for this and is kind of a compromise between what the two parties are offering in terms of tackling this solution. And yet it's going to be dead on arrival in the House. We have a member of the representative, uh, Jasmine Crockett from Texas, who's coming on our show in the, in the coming days. And she knows that this is not going to go anywhere because of what Speaker Johnson just said, to your point, Steph. Yeah, we do have Biden saying, you know, that there's uh, doing nothing is not an option. And yet there are many things that he could have done. And in fact, some things that he undid when he came into office that have accelerated this crisis at the border. So how can we know that this bill will actually cause some change in that direction when there are options that he could be following at the moment, according to, you know, analysis of, of many watching observers? Right. No, I mean, it's a great point. Look, uh, again, a different situation that he inherited, obviously, because of you know what was happening during COVID. And we've seen the encounters spike under his administration year over year. Right. Um, I think the president um, inherited a tough situation. But again, under former President Trump, we saw that encounters were down up until the pandemic, and then it sharply went down because of Title VIII and what Title 42 was enforcing and the Remain in Mexico policy. I think the president right now needs to do everything he can to get folks behind either this bill or have Democrats have some type of additional compromise 
that is met because it's not going to pass in the House, the smell test, because of the fact that Republicans control the House right now. The, the president's in a tough situation right now. Alejandro Mayorkas is facing impeachment hearings. Uh, we've got encounters that are going up. We've got the two agencies that are enforcing this border saying that they are overwhelmed and understaffed and, and they need to get more resources in place. So right now we're all talking in circles. We all see the issues and the problems that are placing in front of us. It's available right there in terms of the data. The agencies are begging for more help. And I just don't understand why we can't get Speaker Mike Johnson to get the rest of the caucus in line with saying that, look, at least if we can sign this, we can champion this as a win in an election year and take this to November, where potentially we can win more House seats and potentially fit some Senate seats in our direction. Right. I don't understand why nobody wants to actually meet that compromise. Yeah, it looks like there's there's certainly efforts on both sides to make this issue to resolve this issue we will have to watch closely to see what happens next on this thank you so much mike leon host of the news commentary podcast can we please talk great to speak with you thanks Steph. and officials in new york city are planning to hand out prepaid debit cards to illegal immigrants sheltering at hotels a pilot program will be run on 500 families first the cards can only be used at grocery and convenience stores and are meant for food, hygiene products, and baby supplies. City records show the $53 million program partners with New Jersey's Mobility Capital Finance. Parents staying short-term at the Roosevelt Hotel will get the pilot cards to replace the hotel's food service program. The cards are refilled each month with an amount based on family size and income. The amount is close to what's provided in the state's food stamp program. Applicants need to sign an affidavit promising only to spend the money on exclusive items or lose access to the program. If the pilot is successful, cards will be given to all illegal immigrants sheltering at city hotels. Roughly 15,000 people. City Hall officials are touting the program as a more cost-effective way for the families to get food and baby supplies compared to the current system of providing non-perishable food boxes. Former President Trump said he plans to give New York a heavy shot in his campaign. Trump believes there's potential to flip traditionally Democratic-leaning states in the general election. Here's the former president speaking on Fox News. As New York has changed a lot in the last two years. We have migrants all over the street. They're living on Madison Avenue. I mean, they, it's, nobody can believe what's happened to New York. The people of New York are angry. People that would have never voted for me because I'm a Republican. I mean, they're Democrats. Their parents would they vote for Democrats. I think they're going to vote for me. Former President Trump says people in New York are also unhappy because crime rates have hit record levels. Trump says he would hold rallies in South Bronx and Madison Square Garden as part of his campaign for a second term in office. The Republican candidate says he believes New Jersey, Virginia, New Mexico, and Minnesota could also be flipped. New York, the most populous city in the United States, has struggled to contend with the arrival of over 120,000 illegal immigrants in the past year. Siena College did a poll on the issue published last year. It shows that more than 80% of reg registered voters in New York view the recent influx of illegal immigrants as a serious problem. Representative James Moylan from Guam raising concerns about an increasing number of illegal Chinese migrants entering the territory. He says this poses a significant threat to the island and has requested assistance from the Biden administration to address the issue. He told Fox News that Guam has been, quote, infiltrated by droves of Chinese migrants. 
According to Moylan, the migrants could potentially engage in activities that compromise U.S. security, such as spying for the Chinese Communist Party. Moylan expressed frustration over the lack of support from the Biden administration. The delegate from Guam also mentioned concerns about cybersecurity threats, with the island seeing hacking attempts by the Chinese regime. He stressed the importance of protecting the island, which is strategically crucial for the United States due to its proximity to China and hosting military bases. Guam is the westernmost U.S. territory in the Indo-Pacific region and home to approximately 170,000 U.S. citizens. And there are nearly 7,000 active duty service members on the island. Coming up, a group of Obama administration veterans are teaming up to support President Biden's re-election bid. Hear their plan of action. A coalition of well-funded individuals working behind the scenes to influence presidential elections. Sounds like a conspiracy theory, but an article in Time magazine suggests that's exactly what happened in 2020. We'll have more in just a moment on NTD News Today. President Biden came out on top in the South Carolina Democratic primary with an overwhelming victory. But there are signs that he's losing support from key demographic groups, particularly black Americans. President Biden won over 96 percent of the vote in South Carolina, earning him 55 delegates, his first in the Democratic primaries. But there are some lingering concerns that he could be losing traction with black voters, a key element of the Democratic coalition. Democrats have been quick to deny this. Congressman James Clyburn saying Biden's support is rock solid among black voters. And the best illustration of that, he got 96 percent of the vote uh, in this primary, but his largest percentage, over 97 percent, was in the town of Orangeburg, where there are two HBCUs and a community college. Black voters were key to helping Biden win the White House in 2020. That year, Biden won 92 percent of the black vote overall, compared to 8 percent by President Trump. Crucially, black voters in Georgia gave Biden a historic win. It was the first time since 1992 that a Democrat won there. But 2024 is a different picture. A November poll by The New York Times and Siena College found that the president's support among black voters in key swing states appeared to be waning. Only 71% of black voters polled said they would vote for Biden, while 22% said they would back Trump, an unprecedented level of support for a Republican candidate in modern times. And a December survey by Jen Ford revealed that 17% of black Americans would vote for Trump. 20% said they would not vote for either of the two current frontrunners. Some polls also show Biden as less electable among younger voters. Many young Democrats disapprove of his handling of the Israel-Hamas war. The president's focus is now on Nevada. On Sunday, he met with black community leaders in Las Vegas to discuss cost-cutting for families and local businesses. Nevada has voted blue in every general election since 2008, but the same New York Times Siena College poll mentioned earlier found Biden trailing Trump by 10 points in the state. The Nevada Democratic primary will be held on Tuesday. Meta's oversight board has determined a Facebook video depicting President Biden as a pedophile does not violate the company's current rules. 
The board also deemed those rules incoherent and too narrowly focused on AI-generated content. The board is funded by Meta but runs independently. It took on the Biden video case in October in response to a user complaint about an altered seven-second video of the president posted on Facebook. The clip manipulated real footage of Biden exchanging I voted stickers with his granddaughter during the 2022 midterm elections and kissing her on the cheek. The board's ruling on Monday is the first to address Meta's manipulated media policy. The company said in a statement today that it was reviewing the ruling and would respond publicly within 60 days. And a group called National Security Action is reportedly being revived to support President Biden's re-election. The group was formed in 2018 by Obama administration veterans Jake Sullivan and Ben Rhodes. Axios reports they aim to emphasize Biden's foreign policy as a reason for Democrats to unite. The group contends that Biden's approach is safer than what they perceive as the dangers associated with another Trump term. They conducted polling on the U.S. approach to China and concluded people want the U.S. to be firm but not confrontational. While they acknowledge foreign policy may not be the primary election issue, they believe it can contribute to a broader argument against Trump's leadership. The leaders of National Security Action originally planned to disband after Biden's 2020 victory. They decided to re-engage over concerns of a potential second Trump administration. An article recently published in the Epic Times describes how a well-funded cabal shaped the 2020 election. To learn more about this and how it relates to the current election year, I spoke with the author of that piece, Epic Times reporter Kevin Stockland. He's also the producer of the Shadow State documentary on Epic TV. Kevin, it's good to see you. Now, you recently wrote an in-depth article on a shadow campaign that impacted the 2020 presidential election, and it could, again, impact this year's upcoming election. Tell us what happened in 2020. Sure. Well, a lot of what happened in 2020 is not really news. It's been covered extensively by um, articles and books. But uh, essentially what happened was there was, uh, in the words of Time magazine, a well-funded cabal which they also call a conspiracy uh, that came together to um, what they say uh, ostensibly save our democracy. But what these groups all had in common was that they uh, wanted Joe Biden to be the next president. So this coalition included uh, union groups, teachers and labor unions. It included progressive nonprofits. Um, it included tech CEOs, billionaires from around the world. Um, it was funded through a network of financing vehicles and included things like Zuckerbucks, which was a $400 million donation from the Mark um, Zuckerberg Foundation. And then, of course, it included uh, people from the Democratic um, National Committee, as well as media groups to control the narrative. Now, it's, it's also called, the, so this cabal, also shadow campaign. I mean, how did it come about? Like, how and why is it able to last you know, this long and, and come into the picture? Well, uh, apparently the, the, the genesis of it uh, came from a gentleman, uh, John Pothauser, who um, is uh, the, the president of the AFL-CIO, uh, and he was holding um, weekly conference calls with all the groups that wanted to ensure that the election went their way. Um, some of these groups were even organizing uh, kind of uh, street protests with the ability to, to bring out social unrest if, if they didn't like the outcome of the campaign. Um, but that was kind of the genesis of it. And then this uh, loosely uh, connected organization 
Uh, some of it disbanded, but it looks like quite a lot of it is uh, gearing up for a repeat in 2024. And Kevin, uh, what can we expect in what can we expect this year in regards to tactics or some of the strategies? Like, are they already in motion? Sure. Well, you know, one of the key uh, legs of this was happening on the legal front. So uh, keep in mind, this was all happening during the time of COVID and uh, the racial unrest after the death of George Floyd. So, um, you know, we at one point in this country, we had a consensus bipartisan about election integrity and what it meant to ensure that that elections were safe and that all votes were counted. Um, They systematically uh, sued, brought lawsuits against state um, election committees and uh, legislatures and governors to loosen uh, campaign integrity laws. This included things like fighting voter ID, uh, fighting um, clearing of voter rolls to remove people who moved away or died. This included fighting checking signatures on mail-in ballots, but most importantly, it included a campaign to have mass mail-in balloting, um, which uh, you know was generally not the case uh, up to that point. Kevin, popular belief is that you win an election by good policy, appealing to voters and running a good campaign alone. But tell us how crucial is mass on the ground organization is to winning? Well, it's proving to be more and more essential. And, you know, one would think that, um, you know, the more that we uh, loosen a election integrity laws, and the more we allow people to vote, that should benefit both parties. But what the uh, what this cabal, so to speak, had in its favor was um, an analytics group. There was two. There was the Analyst Institute and Catalyst. And they had, uh, you know, still have databases of nearly every American voter down to the person where you live, how you voted, um, and, um, you know, how they can change your voting habits. And so this allowed them to really target the money and target all of the campaigns to bring out the vote at voters who would vote for the Democratic Party. All right, Kevin, thank you so much for your insight. My pleasure. Thank you. Coming up with California, often in the news for the wrong reasons as far as crime goes, a Democratic mayor tries to buck the trend with a new surveillance plan. A new product could change how we watch TV and use computers. Apple launches its first all-new product in seven years. We'll have the details when we return. The Democratic mayor of San Francisco is pushing a public safety proposal on the March 5th ballot that would grant police more crime-fighting powers. Those would include the use of drones and surveillance cameras to deter crime and catch criminals. My store got broken into um, about 3 a.m. in the morning and the thieves got in and as they were leaving, police uh, arrived on time and then they were close to catching them, but due to police policy, they weren't able to stop them and let the suspects get away. Mayor London Breed faces cranky voters and a competitive re-election in November. She urged voters to pass Prop E during a campaign stop at an athletic apparel and shoe store that has been repeatedly burglarized. Besides authorizing drones, cameras, and other modern technologies, the measure would allow police to pursue more suspects by vehicle and not just in cases of a violent felony or immediate public threat. Opponents say the measures raise privacy concerns and would hurt minority communities. It's about making sure that our police department, like any other police department around the country, can use 21st century technology. Anyone at any given time can pull out their cell phones 
and record anything that they want. Why can't we use the same kind of technology to not only deal with the crime after it was committed, but to prevent it in the first place? We have to be very careful. Uh, infringement on our civil liberties, infringement on our right to privacy is something that is very concerning. After U.S. technology was smuggled into Iran's military, four Chinese nationals were charged for their alleged involvement. Earlier, I spoke with Lee Smith, author of The Strong Horse, Power, Politics, and the Clash of Arab Civilizations. He's also the host of Over the Target on Epic TV. Lee, welcome and thanks for joining us. Now, the Justice Department has charged several Chinese nationals for allegedly smuggling U.S. technology to Iran's military. What do you make of this alleged partnership and scheme? Uh, well, certainly there's been a partnership between the Chinese Communist Party and the Iranians going back, perhaps going back decades. Uh, um, but certainly right now what we're seeing is, is that Iran is part of the anti-U.S. Uh, block, which China, uh, China is at the head of. So it doesn't surprise me at all that, um, that the Chinese are working this angle. And we know that the United States, we know that the United States has lots of problems with Chinese Communist Party espionage. And, and also we have a problem with Iranian esp espionage. The Iranians have been doing this themselves for a long time. If there's any surprise, it's that. It's that the Iranians are not, uh, are not stealing material out of the United States and sending it to Iran and, and taking it back with Iran with them. You may remember recently there was a hostage exchange where five Americans were released and five Iranian nationals were uh, exchanged. And those Iranians were all involved in the same sort of thing, stealing valuable technology and passing it on to the regime in Tehran. So unfortunately, this is par for the course. For more than a decade, the defendants allegedly used front companies in communist China to funnel the technology that's capable of helping the production of drones and military missile systems. How does something like this slip by the U.S. unnoticed for so many years? Well, I mean, you know as well as I do, that we have an enormous problem in the United States. And the problem in the, in the United States is not simply the Chinese Communist Party. The problem is American elites who have been advancing this very poisonous relationship, mm, certainly, uh, certainly for, for quite some time. And I would argue that it goes back to the very beginning, the uh, so-called opening to Beijing in 1972. So the idea that the Americans are looking the other way when uh, CCP agents are sending valuable material back to Beijing. This is not surprising at all. It's absolutely par for the course. And again, this points to the fact that the real problem are, uh, are, are it's the Americans in charge who are supposed to be looking out for U.S. interests, but simply are not. Now, uh, let's dig into the CCP's relationship with Iran. Uh, how deep to, do these ties run and in what other ways does the CCP bolster the Iranian regime? Uh, well, they lend all sorts of things from, you know, dip, uh, political support is very important, of course. I mean, th th there's some speculation, do, do, do uh, you know, does Beijing really want the, the, the terror regime to get a nuclear bomb? I, I, I'm not sure. But I think they, the CCP certainly sees it to its advantage that, the, that Tehran is another pressure point on the United States and on American allies. And we're seeing that play out throughout the world. We're seeing it play out, first of all, uh, last weekend when three American soldiers were killed by an Iranian proxy. Uh, they were killed in Jordan. We see this with another Iranian proxy, Hamas, 
uh, at war with Israel, having you know ha having slaughtered thousands in southern Israel uh, back in October. So all of these things are good for China. Anything that's going to set back the United States and its allies, anything that will distract the United States and its allies from uh, from the problems the CCP poses, it's, it's very good for Beijing. Lee Smith, uh, keep us informed on this topic. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. The second of back-to-back -back atmospheric rivers battered California yesterday. It's a weather system that the National Weather Service said could be potentially historic. NCD's Daniel Monahan has more on the storms, which flooded roadways and knocked out power to hundreds of thousands of people. Atmospheric rivers are wide-reaching plumes of moisture that act like a fire hose tapping into warm, moist air from the tropics. Storms can then unload them as drenching rainfall and heavy snow over land. The storms prompted a rare warning for hurricane-force winds as the Golden State braced for what could be days of heavy rains. Streets were inundated and trees and electrical lines were knocked down across the San Francisco Bay Area. Gusts exceeding 80 miles per hour were recorded in the mountains. In Southern California, officials warned of potentially devastating flooding and ordered evacuations for canyons that are at high risk for mud and debris flows. Here, a passenger dumps water out of a drenched vehicle. Motorists kept the roads busy despite the rising water levels. Here, people prepared for the potential floods with sand. Roadways were blocked in areas of central and northern California. California fire crews rescued a man whose vehicle was stuck in flooded waters. Here, the rushing water of the L.A. River in Sherman Oaks on Sunday can be seen. In San Jose, firefighters rescued people and animals as heavy rain slammed the area. A large tree split in half and knocked down power lines in Santa Barbara. Officials in Santa Barbara and Ventura counties have issued evacuation orders for people living near areas that will likely flood. The rough weather resulted in hundreds of flights at California airports being canceled or delayed, and more than 800,000 customers were reported to be without power in California. Both NASCAR and PGA canceled events scheduled in California over the weekend due to the severe weather. The Storm Prediction Center said six San Francisco Bay Area counties were at low risk of water spouts coming ashore and becoming tornadoes. The last time the center forecasted a tornado risk in the region was in February 2015, according to the San Francisco Chronicle. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And we have an update on those power outage numbers. Numbers As of this morning, more than 500,000 customers are still without power in California. That's according to poweroutage.us. Apple has released a new headset device that some call a pair of designer ski goggles. Apple's Vision Pro debuted in stores with a crowd lining up to snatch up the product. Entity's Don Ma has more on the new release. Apple's all-new product in nearly a decade. The Vision Pro officially launched in stores in the U.S. and the hope is for the new device to fundamentally change how people watch television at home and how they use computers at work. For now though, Apple is getting mixed results for the product, but the headset could be positioned to be a successor to both traditional television and the Mac in the future. I think Vision Pro is revolutionary. It's really Apple in the next generation, the start of AI. And what Cupertino is doing 
This is, in my opinion, really the next form factor two years from now is probably going to look like sunglasses, less than $1,500. The Vision Pro, as it is currently, is not an easy sell. At $3,500, it won't be for everyone. And once you factor in additional accessories, like a $200 travel case and a $50 battery pack, it can cost up to $4,600. The Apple headset enters the augmented reality market with stiff competition from big rivals like Meta and Microsoft. I think even though many are dismissing it, this is almost another iPhone in motion, especially as price points, 600 apps, and more consumers go to these devices over the coming years. I view it as a historical moment in Cupertino. The headset itself looks like a pair of designer ski goggles. It features a soft adjustable strap on the top, a digital crown on the back. It's a computer around the eyes, but it's surprisingly light and comfortable to wear. The headset tracks the eyes, scans hands, and maps the room. Users will then see an iOS-like interface placed in front of their environment. By using eye movements and touching the thumb and pointer finger together, it allows people to seamlessly go in and out of apps like Messages, FaceTime, Safari, and Photos. Now, Photos can be viewed at life-size or as if you're watching them on a giant movie screen. Panoramics, meanwhile, place you directly within the scene. I think it's another notch on the belt for Cook, another trophy case moment. This is long in development, and Apple now goes into an ecosystem of 2 billion devices. Betting against Apple has been the wrong move. Almost every new Apple product, from the iPhone to the Apple Watch, promises to use screens of varying sizes to change how we live, work, and interact with the world. The Vision Pro has the potential to do all that in an even more striking way. But out of the gate, the Vision Pro will likely remain a niche product for die-hard Apple enthusiasts and developers, largely due to the price tag. Morgan Stanley analysts project the company will ship up to 400,000 Vision Pro units this year. Don Ma, NTD News. Coming up, a sea of light on dark winter nights. The Copenhagen Light Festival takes over the Danish city for the seventh year in a row. A look at the stunning artistic installations. A Croatian car lover giving locals free rides. His retro bus carries passengers around one of the country's beautiful coastal cities. We'll take a look in just a moment here on NTD News Today. In Denmark, the Copenhagen Light Festival brightens up the dark February nights in the country's capital. The annual festival is now in its seventh edition. It brings together up to 50 art installations, attracting artists from both Denmark and all over the world. The artwork aims to bring out the cityscape and architecture of Copenhagen. Some installations have thought-provoking themes. The work is called uh, Love and War because it's about the love life of Ukrainians. I have learned from this war piece that uh, it's really tough and hard to live through war. But uh, you have to keep hope, you have to keep loving, or otherwise it's not worth fighting for your life. The event started on Friday and the displays will last until February 25th. Visitors wanting to experience the art can take part in walking and cycling tours focused on different themes of the event. In Croatia, a car lover is giving locals free rides. On weekends, an old bus from the year 1981 transports passengers around one of the country's beautiful coastal cities. 
NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on the nostalgic vehicle. Old car enthusiast Josip Matulik in Croatia offers free rides around the coastal city of Split. Having a retro bus has always been a dream for the 27-year-old. I have loved buses since I can remember, and I still don't know why. I especially like the older models. The idea has always been there. I always wanted to have my own old bus, even if it was meant to be just parked outside my house. Matulik doesn't advertise his services. He meets passengers at bus stops and tells them where he's going. There are many reactions. Some immediately take out their cell phones and record, while others watch me pass by in amazement. It's quite rare for a private individual to own a vintage city bus in Croatia. The vehicle provides a sense of nostalgia for this 21-year-old passenger. It certainly brings back memories of an elementary school in the 7th and 8th grades. My most difficult period with some ditching school and some trips to school. In the summertime, when it was hot, it would be a hundred times hotter. In winter, it was freezing inside. Other old buses in Dubrovnik have been converted into open-air vehicles. Some are now used to transport tourists. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Passengers on a nine-month world cruise have become unlikely stars on TikTok and Instagram. Thousands are following their epic voyage on board Royal Caribbean's Serenade of the Seas. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on the social media sensation. Royal Caribbean's ultimate world cruise is underway. The voyage took off from Miami on December 10th and drew over 360 million views on social media. Yeah, I think this is really going to play out over the next nine months as the kind of drama that we all want. Uh, which is, we just want to see people in the buffet. We want to see people doing their laundry. We want to see people just sitting on deck having a nice time. It is the kind of brilliant drama that's basically no drama drama. Nancy and Mike Jacobs from Michigan captured footage of their treacherous journey through the Drake Passage. Video of them crossing between Cape Horn and Antarctica has over 5 million views on TikTok. We never expected so much interest in the world cruise. Um, we've been planning this for two years and, you know, for us it's, it's the trip of a lifetime but we did not know so many other people would be so interested. Brandy Lake from Los Angeles has been capturing content to show friends and family. The 46-year-old has been surprised at how popular her travel videos have been. One garnered over 2.7 million views. Um, I think I don't consider it fame. I think it's just really interesting that the world is so obsessed on TikTok with the cruise, but I'm with my family and just trying to enjoy it like normal. Peru's Machu Picchu, Australia's Great Barrier Reef, and the Great Wall of China are just a few of the voyage's 60 destinations. Typically on a world cruise, they'd often be about four months. It would be people who had the money and it would be people who had the time to do it. And what this has done with the high-speed internet is drawn a large number of digital nomads and people who can carry on working. Tickets for the trip started around $54,000. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Matcha is more than just a cup of tea. It's abundant in antioxidants and used in products from facial masks to ice cream. Here's Gina Marie from Strong Mind and Body.
matcha has a long distinguished history in Japan. It's considered unique in the world of tea. It's distinct because the leaves are ground into a fine powder and consumed in their entirety. Matcha is rich in bioactive compounds such as theanine, caffeine, chlorophyll and catechins. Matcha contains powerful antioxidants. These are responsible for its many health benefits. According to research, it can prevent and treat chronic diseases. A growing number of studies find that it can boost cognition, improve memory and focus, elevate your mood and protect against Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Drinking matcha regularly can increase your metabolism. This can help you to burn fat more effectively. Of course, there is no quick fix for weight loss, but adding matcha to your weight loss program may help to increase your results. One study in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition demonstrated that matcha can burn calories and fat. Matcha also supports healthy weight loss. It does this by helping you to feel more satiated. In another study, consumption of green tea improved abdominal fat loss in obese adults. It also improves oral health, boosts the immune system, benefits the skin, lowers cholesterol, and improves mood, anxiety, and depression. Tea holds a special place in the lives of the Japanese. The tea ceremony is a beautiful ritual of intention and quiet reflection. This is something we could all use a little more of in the West, especially with our fast-paced lifestyles. Interest in matcha is surging as people are beginning to realize the wonders of this magnificent Japanese tea. According to Business Insider, matcha exports outside Japan have doubled in the past decade. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, please feel free to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are our top stories. A drone attack in Syria last night on a base housing U.S. troops kills at least six allied Kurdish soldiers. We have the latest in the escalating conflict. Secretary of State Antony Blinken arrives in Saudi Arabia, the first stop in a wider tour of the Middle East. What's on the agenda amid the surge in regional violence? More than a dozen governors from across the country joining Greg Abbott and Eagle Pass on Sunday, showing their support to secure the border. NTD's Kelly Wright in Texas. Another problem found with Boeing's 737 MAX jets that might delay deliveries, Why the company is reworking about 50 new airplanes. Australia criticizing China after the communist regime handed an Australian pro-democracy blogger a suspended death penalty. What we know about the verdict. And in the NFL, with less than a week to go, Super Bowl prices remain sky high. Entity's Dave Martin joins us, to, joins us to discuss why this year's event is shaping up to be the perfect storm. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. Hi, I'm David Lamb, sitting in for Chris Beers. And to begin the show, Secretary of State Antony Blinken arrived in Saudi Arabia today, his first stop in a wider tour of the Middle East. Washington is trying to advance negotiations on a normalization deal between Saudi Arabia and Israel, as well as make progress on talks for the governance of post-war Gaza. It's the top U.S. diplomat's fifth trip to the region since Hamas's deadly October 7th attack. 
The trip comes as discussions over a ceasefire are intensifying, but also as fears grow of a regional conflict. Blinken is also set to visit Egypt, Qatar and Israel later this week and push to advance conversations with Hamas, mediated by Egypt and Qatar, to achieve a hostage deal. In Riyadh, Blinken was expected to meet with the kingdom's de facto ruler, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, and the Saudi foreign minister. And a drone attack in eastern Syria overnight killed six allied Kurdish fighters at a base housing U.S. troops. No American casualties reported. An Iran-backed terrorist group known as the Islamic Resistance in Iraq claimed responsibility for the attack. This after the U.S. warned Iran and its proxies yesterday it will continue to strike back if American forces in the Middle East are targeted. Major U.S. airstrikes over the weekend were carried out against Iran-backed groups in Syria, Iraq and Yemen. That's in retaliation against last week's drone attack in Jordan that killed three U.S. service members and wounded over 40 others. NCD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the response. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said Sunday the U.S. wants to avoid an open-ended military campaign in the Middle East when promising a swift and forceful response to any direct response by Iran. The president was clear when he ordered them and when he conducted them that that was the beginning of our response and there will be more steps to come. The warning comes after a weekend of retaliatory strikes, with 85 targets hit in Iraq and Syria on Friday. Targets included command and control headquarters, intelligence centers, rockets and missiles, and drone and ammunition storage sites used by Iran's Revolutionary Guard Quds Force and its proxies. We are still assessing uh, the battle damage. Uh, our CENTCOM, Central Command, uh, is looking at the capabilities we reduced and the casualties that were incurred. The U.S. and the U.K. struck 36 Houthi targets in Yemen Saturday. The Pentagon says it hit missile launchers and buried weapons storage facilities at 13 locations. U.S. Central Command says it shot down an anti-ship cruise missile in self-defense Sunday and four ready to be launched. President Biden was asked if the strikes are working. Yeah. Republican House Speaker Mike Johnson says the U.S. needs to make it absolutely clear that nothing is off the table. We maintain peace through strength. The House Speaker says the administration should not be appeasing Iran and that a lot more could be done to turn up the heat. In the Trump administration, we used a drone and three missiles yeah. to take out Qasem Soleimani near Baghdad. That sent a strong message and it quelled all of the activity there. What, what we're doing right now, we're, sending, we're using potentially hundreds of munitions yeah. to, to strike close to 100 uh, targets so far, but we're not going right to the heart of the matter. Johnson says the U.S. needs to target assets in Iran's central bank. Meanwhile, Iran is warning the U.S. not to target two cargo ships known to loiter in the Red Sea, suspected of being forward operating bases for Iran's Revolutionary Guard. The Iran-backed Houthi terrorist group is promising to continue its attacks and says coalition strikes will not go unanswered or unpunished. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. And the U.S. says it will take more action after retaliatory strikes against Iran-backed militants and Iranian military targets in Iraq and Syria began on Friday. Here to discuss this and related tensions in the region, we have Major General Bob Deese, a former commander of the U.S.-Israeli Combined Task Force for Missile Defense and the president and CEO of the National Center for Healthy Veterans. General, welcome. How do you assess the strategic implications of the recent U.S. airstrikes in Iraq and Syria? Well, I think you just had on your show the uh, House Speaker that said uh, basically strength uh, through deterrence, peace through uh, strength, strength through deterrence. I think we're failing thus far at deterrence. 
we have not invested in deterrence uh, for the last uh, five to 10 years, and it's gonna take quite a while to reestablish deterrence. In, in other words, to shape the actions of Iran and their surrogates so that they're not uh, like last night uh, attacking U.S. bases. We're grateful that last night we didn't have additional U.S. soldiers uh, killed. For sure, indeed. And what do you think it will take to deter Iran at this time? <clears throat> well, I'm on the side of uh, uh, we need to make it more punitive to Iran themselves. Uh, certainly economically, we've lifted some of the sanctions. We haven't carried through with those. Uh, we haven't uh, punished uh, some of their oil, uh, uh, such as on Karg Island, which could easily be attacked. Uh, in addition, uh, militarily, uh, there are a number of options related to Iran that need to be pursued. Uh, in an earlier assignment in the Pentagon, I was in charge of all U.S. war plans. And, uh, you know, there's, there are contingencies related to Iran. And so within the Pentagon, there, there's all sorts of options. I just think the administration needs to look seriously at some of those options which punish uh, Iran directly and not just punishment, but deter Iran from taking further action and from calling some of their surrogates off, uh, you know, if nothing else, from not resourcing them further. And based on your uh, expertise and background, what kind of challenges do you think are presented in moving towards these options that you've just laid on the table? Right. Well, if you've looked at the map, uh, Iran is a huge landmass. And uh, as a war planner, uh, it was not lost on me that it's, it's, it's difficult. But uh, on the periphery of Iran, some of their vulnerable oil uh, storage facilities, some of their uh, command and control facilities, some of their spy ships in the Red Sea that help uh, guide uh, drones into U.S. assets, all of those can be attacked uh, appropriately and precisely without, uh, you know, quote, starting a big uh, uh, all-out land war with Iran. So you, you believe that some specific strikes on Iran would not wake that and, and cause a bigger, wider war and a response from Iran? Is that what you're saying? Uh, that's correct. Uh, you know, when uh, President Reagan uh, was confronted by Iranian uh, radicals, uh, he sunk half of the Iranian Navy. And lo and behold, it didn't start a war. Uh, it, it started a, a, a period of a peace and calm in the region. Uh, similarly, uh, when uh, President Trump uh, killed Soleimani, uh, it resulted not in war, but it resulted in uh, peace in the region for a period of time. And yet so at this strength time... through peace. Hmm. It, it does seem that at this time, with various waived sanctions and perhaps Iran getting more funds than it had in, the, in pre recent years, that Iran does present more of a concern in terms of retaliatory strikes, and they have said that they would strike back if they were struck. So what, how do you factor in that aspect of Iran's funding perhaps being higher than in recent years? Yeah, well, I think it's, uh, it's, it, it is uh, not good that we have funded them uh, implicitly over many years. You know, the money that went to Iran to deter their nuclear advancement was uh, not money well spent. Millions, hundreds of millions of dollars went to Iran 
well, where does that go? That goes to funding their uh, surrogates uh, in the region. Uh, so yes, we have loosened economic sanctions. We have given them money uh, on a fool's errand to deter their nuclear development uh, just through uh, weakness. So I think uh, we need to not have a Neville Chamberlain moment, but we need to stand firm with Iran. We need to help them understand that U.S. is serious and will deter them in a punishing way. And that's when the uh, mullahs and others in Iran will truly understand and truly uh, recognize U.S. deterrence. Major General Bob Deese, former commander of the U.S.-Israeli Combined Task Force for Missile Defense and president and CEO of the National Center for Healthy Veterans. Great to speak with you. Thank you so much. You too. Appreciate it. Thank you. The U.S. Senate yesterday unveiled a nearly $120 billion bipartisan border security bill. The bill would also provide aid to Ukraine and Israel. Entity's Daniel Monahan has more on the legislation that's already facing opposition from the House of Representatives. President Biden called on Congress to unite and swiftly pass the border agreement. But House Speaker Mike Johnson declared it dead on arrival if it reaches his chamber. Johnson wrote on X that, this bill is even worse than we expected and won't come close to ending the border catastrophe the president has created. The House Speaker addressed the border on NBC's Meet the Press on Sunday. The American people are done with this. The border has to be secured. The president has the authority right now. He doesn't need another act of Congress. The bill would provide about $20 billion for border security, around $60 billion for Ukraine, about $14 billion for Israel, and $10 billion in humanitarian assistance for civilians in conflict zones, including in Ukraine, Gaza, and the West Bank. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said he would take steps to hold an initial vote on the bill on Wednesday. The bill's proponents said it would end the controversial catch-and-release practice that critics say contribute to high numbers of illegal immigrants arriving at the southern border. It would do so by speeding up rulings on asylum cases instead of quickly releasing apprehended illegal migrants and allowing them to stay in the United States for years while they await hearings. Some Republicans are skeptical of the new Senate bill. House Majority Leader Steve Scalise wrote on X that, Here's what the people pushing this deal aren't telling you. It accepts 5,000 illegal immigrants a day and gives automatic work permits to asylum recipients, a magnet for more illegal immigration. Once the number of encounters reaches 5,000, expulsions would automatically take effect. Immigration is the second largest concern for Americans, according to a Reuters Ipsos poll published last week. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer told MSNBC's Morning Joe that the bill will need support from several Senate Republicans to pass. The New York Democrat says they'll need to overcome pressure from supporters of former President Trump. I'm confident, hopeful is the right word. This is hard. And our Republican senators, we need a bunch of them, are under a lot of pressure from the right-wing Trump part of the party. Schumer said the four-month-long process has resulted in a bipartisan bill. He criticized both Republicans for their resistance to the legislation. Schumer warned of severe consequences for Ukraine, the Middle East, and the border if the bill fails to pass both chambers. He also blamed Trump for the stalemate. Schumer called the bill a compromise and added, quote, the majority of Republican senators know this bill is the right thing to do. Thirteen governors joined Texas Governor Greg Abbott in Eagle Pass yesterday as a show of support. NTD's Kelly Wright brings us more from the southern border. 
I'm Kelly Wright in Del Rio, Texas, along the southern border between Texas and Mexico. In fact, to my left, just yards away from me, is the country of Mexico. You can see that there's fencing all the way down the border line. And over my shoulder, this tall, tall structure here, that is the original wall that the former president of the United States, Donald Trump, wanted erected all along the border. Now, what's happening here today is the fact that so many illegal immigrants have crossed into America through the southern border. To be exact, Governor Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, states that 10 million illegal immigrants came across into America just this past year. Now, he, along with 14 other Republican governors, gathered an Eagle Pass not far from here at the border there along Mexico to state very clearly that they want something done about it. They sent a message to President Joe Biden saying enough is enough, something must be done, it's time for the president there they say, to act, to close the open border. And we are here to send a loud and clear message that we are banding together to fight to ensure that we will be able to maintain our constitutional guarantee that states will be able to defend against any type of imminent danger or an invasion. There's extraordinary danger, imminent danger, crossing our border all the time. I mean, the federal government's role uh, under the Constitution is to protect our borders, right? And if they fail to protect the borders, then states are obligated to step into that particular breach. Uh, none of this would have to happen if the federal government would simply enforce the laws that are already on the books. Still the greatest country on the face of the world. And we need to be thankful for that, but we also have a responsibility to protect it. Because I want my kids and every kid growing up in this country to get to have the same America that we're growing up in right now. But we're going to have to fight for it and protect it if that's what we want to pass down. And back live now, you can see that the governor of the state of Texas is quite concerned, along with the 14 other Republican governors who came here to stand in solidarity with him. All of them agree that something must be done. And many people that I spoke to here, they agree as well. In fact, some of the people living in Del Rio at Eagle Pass have explained to me that they believe that the federal government has failed them, has let them down in protecting them from illegal immigrants who have come into this country and caused them to lose their livelihood. Uh, ranchers, for example, talking about they lost their livestock. And just average citizens feeling that they can't walk freely through their own neighborhoods anymore because of the dangers the perils that exist from the threatening issues involving illegal drug trafficking as well as human trafficking and child trafficking. It's quite a, a mess here and the only way to clean up this mess is for Congress and state governments as well as the federal government to do something. The citizens want something done. They're actually clamoring for some action, for some change to cut down on the legal immigration issue. Reporting from Del Rio, Texas, along the Mexico border, I'm Kelly Wright. Back to you. Officials in New York City are planning to hand out prepaid debit cards to illegal immigrants sheltering at hotels. A pilot program will be run on 500 families first. The cards can only be used at grocery and convenience stores and are meant for food, hygiene products, and baby supplies. City records show the $53 million program partners with New Jersey's Mobility Capital Finance. Parents staying short-term at the Roosevelt Hotel will get the pilot cards to replace the hotel's food service program. The cards are refilled each month 
with an amount based on family size and income. The amount is close to what's provided in the state's food stamp program. Applicants need to sign an affidavit promising only to spend the money on exclusive items or lose access to the program. If the pilot is successful, cars will be given to all illegal immigrants sheltering at city hotels. Roughly 15,000 people. City Hall officials are touting the program as a more cost-effective way for the families to get food and baby supplies compared to the current system of providing non-perishable food boxes. Former President Trump said he plans to give New York a heavy shot in his campaign. Trump believes there's potential to flip traditionally Democratic-leaning states in the general election. Here's a former president speaking on Fox News. As New York has changed a lot in the last two years. We have migrants all over the street. They're living on Madison Avenue. I mean, they, it's, nobody can believe what's happened to New York. The people of New York are angry. People that would have never voted for me because I'm a Republican. I mean, they're Democrats. Their parents would they vote for Democrats. I think they're going to vote for me. The former president says people in New York are also unhappy because the crime rates have hit record levels. Trump said he would hold rallies in South Bronx and Madison Square Garden as part of his campaign. The Republican candidate says he believes New Jersey, Virginia, New Mexico and Minnesota could also be flipped. New York, the most populous city in the United States, has struggled to contend with the arrival of over 120,000 illegal immigrants in the past year. Siena College did a poll on the issue published last year. It shows that more than 80% of registered voters in New York view the recent influx of illegal immigrants as a serious problem. Representative James Moylan from Guam raising concerns about an increasing number of illegal Chinese migrants entering the territory. He says this poses a significant threat to the island and has requested assistance from the Biden administration to address the issue. He told Fox News that Guam has been, quote, infiltrated by droves of Chinese migrants. According to Moylan, the migrants could potentially engage in activities that compromise U.S. security, such as spying for the Chinese Communist Party. Moylan expressed frustration over the lack of support from the Biden administration. The delegate from Guam also mentioned concerns about cybersecurity threats, with the island seeking hacking attempts by the Chinese regime. He stressed the importance of protecting the island, which is strategically crucial for the United States due to its proximity to China and hosting military bases. Guam is the westernmost U.S. territory in the Indo-Pacific region and home to approximately 170,000 U.S. citizens. And there are nearly 7,000 active duty service members on the island. Coming up, a manipulated video of President Biden that paints him in a negative light can stay on Facebook. That's the decision by Meta's review board. More on the video and why the board says its ruling is due to a problematic loophole. Drones and surveillance cameras, they're part of the San Francisco mayor's plan to broaden police power. The proposal comes ahead of a competitive election where crime is sure to be front and center with voters. Meta's oversight board says a Facebook video depicting President Biden as a pedophile <clears throat> does not violate the company's current rules. But the board also deemed those rules incoherent and too narrowly focused on AI-generated content. The board is funded by Meta but runs independently. It took on the Biden video case in October in response to a user complaint about an altered seven-second video of the president posted on Facebook. The clip manipulated real footage of Biden exchanging I voted stickers with his granddaughter during the 2022 midterm elections and kissing her on the cheek. The board's ruling on Monday is the first to address Meta's manipulated media policy. 
The company said in a statement today that it was reviewing the ruling and will respond publicly within 60 days. And a group called National Security Action is reportedly being revived to support President Biden's re-election. The group was formed in 2018 by Obama administration veterans Jake Sullivan and Ben Rhodes. Axios reports that they aim to emphasize Biden's foreign policy as a reason for Democrats to unite. The group contends that Biden's approach is safer than what they perceive as the dangers associated with another Trump term. They conducted polling on the U.S. approach to China and concluded people want the U.S. to be firm but not confrontational. While they acknowledge foreign policy may not be the primary election issue, they believe it can contribute to a broader argument against Trump's leadership. The leaders of national security action originally planned to disband after Biden's 2020 victory. They've decided to re-engage over concerns of a potential second Trump administration. And the Democratic mayor of San Francisco is pushing a public safety proposal on the March 5th ballot that would grant police more crime-fighting powers. Those would include the use of drones and surveillance cameras to deter crime and catch criminals. My store got broken into um, about 3 a.m. in the morning and the thieves got in and as they were leaving, police uh, arrived on time and then they were close to catching them, but due to police policy, they weren't able to stop them and let the suspects get away. Mayor London Breed faces cranky voters and a competitive re-election in November. She urged voters to pass Prop E during a campaign stop at an athletic apparel and shoe store that has been repeatedly burglarized. Besides authorizing drones, cameras, and other modern technologies, the measure would allow police to pursue more suspects by vehicle, and not just in cases of a violent felony or immediate threat to public safety. Opponents say the measure raises privacy concerns and would hurt minority communities. It's about making sure that our police department, like any other police department around the country, can use 21st century technology. Anyone at any given time can pull out their cell phones and record anything that they want. Why can't we use the same kind of technology to not only deal with the crime after it was committed, but to prevent it in the first place? We have to be very careful. Uh, infringement on our civil liberties, infringement on our right to privacy is something that is very concerning. Boeing has to rework about 50 planes after a new problem was found during the production of 737 MAX jets. In a memo to employees, it was revealed a supplier had misdrilled holes in the fuselages. The 737 MAX factory in Renton, Washington, will spend several days working on a fix. Boeing says this is not an immediate flight safety issue, and all 737s can continue operating safely. But it could delay the delivery of MAX planes to airlines. This is the latest setback for Boeing which includes a terrifying accident mid-flight when part of an Alaska Airlines plane blew off. Spotify is signing a new multi-year deal with podcast host Joe Rogan. The music streaming service says the new deal will let Rogan's podcast be distributed to other platforms. The Joe Rogan experience has consistently been the number one podcast around the world. But the show has attracted its share of controversy too, coming under fire during the pandemic for Rogan's skepticism around COVID-19 vaccines. Spotify said Rogan's podcast will be available on Apple, Amazon, and YouTube, but it did not comment further about the deal's terms. Rapper and social activist Killer Mike is out of jail on his own recognizance after being charged with one misdemeanor count of battery. That's according to the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department inmate website. The arrest happened the same night the artist won three Grammys. A police spokesman said it stemmed from an altercation inside the arena. 
Killer Mike was due back in court February 29th. The information from officials refers to him by his legal name, Michael Render. Killer Mike's representatives did not immediately return a request for comment. And coming up, Australia criticizing China after the communist regime handed an Australian pro-democracy blogger a suspended death penalty. What we know about the verdict. A country singer gets flagged after promoting his music on TikTok. What triggered the social media app? We'll hear his story when we return. Beijing handing a suspended death sentence to Australian citizen Yang Hung Jun. That's, that happened just today. Here's Australian Foreign Minister Penny Wong speaking. We understand that this can be committed to a life sentence following two years. The Australian government is appalled at this outcome. We will be communicating our response in the strongest terms. Wong said she's summoned China's ambassador to, to Australia. Authorities detained Yang in 2019 when he went to visit his family in China. Before that, he was working in New York and regularly posted comments critical of Beijing on X. Yang had over 130,000 followers on the platform. Beijing later charged him with espionage. Yang denies the accusations. Officials didn't give details on his charges. He had a closed-door trial in 2021. Australian diplomats were denied entry. And last year, Young told his family that he fears he would die in detention. That's after he was diagnosed with a kidney cyst. Human Rights Watch said Young's sentence is a setback for China-Australia relations. Well, it, I mean, it seemed like the Australia-China relationship was getting back onto a more stable, secure footing. But I think it's hard to see how the relationship can improve if one party is committing acts of arbitrary detention um, against another. China's arbitrary detention extends to many more foreign nationals. A list of Americans currently being detained by Beijing, American businessman Mark Swidon. He's currently on death row with a suspended death sentence. Swidon was arrested in China over a decade ago on drug-related charges. He's been held in prison since then. And then there's American pastor David Lin. Lin is originally from China and became a Christian after coming to the U.S. He later went back to China. Lin was active with house church activities there and was arrested. He's set to be released in 2030. Another is Li Kai, a, U a naturalized U.S. citizen born in China. He was detained on a 2016 visit to relatives in Shanghai and is now serving a 10-year prison sentence for espionage. Just this May, China sentenced a 78-year-old American citizen to life in prison on spying charges. China did not give details. The State Department has warned Americans to reconsider travel to China. And actress Nicole Kidman's new show has made its debut across the globe. Despite being filmed in Hong Kong, though, viewers in the city are blocked from watching it. What sparked the censorship? Entity's Sam Wong has the details. At the peak of Hong Kong's COVID-19 lockdown, Aussie movie star Nicole Kidman received a rare exemption from Hong Kong officials to film a new series. She was one of the few in her crew who got to walk free in the city as residents and travelers were bound by quarantine. Axbass is an Amazon Prime drama about foreigners living in Hong Kong, but upon its release last month, it was made available everywhere besides inside the city itself. The show features scenes of the Umbrella Movement in 2014, when thousands of pro-democracy activists took to the streets to demand a transparent election. It all started with Beijing proposing a rule which allowed the CCP to handpick candidates in Hong Kong's elections. 
Expats isn't the only show subjected to censorship in Hong Kong. Disney Plus previously took down episodes of The Simpsons from its service there. That's for making reference to China's forced labor camps. In 2020, Beijing began to push its draconian national security law onto the city. Hundreds of pro-democracy activists have since been arrested or forced into exile. The entertainment industry also became a target a year later, when the city passed a law that would ban films deemed to violate China's so-called national security. Sam Wang, NTD News. Censorship on social media. Some platforms are not only cracking down on what they see as hate speech, they're also targeting religious content. A country singer from North Carolina says he experienced this firsthand when a song he posted on TikTok got flagged. Let's hear about his experience. For country singer Cody Webb, his Christian faith is integral. In August, a song he posted on TikTok received a notification pertaining to what it called sensitive religious content. That is actually a song that I did not write. Um, my producer found it, uh, some friends of mine wrote it, and my producer sent it to me about a year ago, and I fell in love with it. And we sat in the, in the room and all picked up a guitar and played the song, and someone filmed it, and I posted that to TikTok. Puzzled by the incident, Cody decided to make a video sharing his experience and call out the social media platform. And it just sort of, I won't say it went viral, but it got over a million views. And um, I then posted the video uh, of the song after it came out, uh, sort of telling the story. And that, that video got millions of views. He then told his followers that he doesn't want to be divisive or to try to force people to believe what and how he believes. And that in his view, we all have the freedom to be who we are. The flagged song, If Daddy Didn't Have a Truck, expresses who he is, and he subsequently fell in love with it for that reason. Cody said that he can identify very much with the song, having been raised in a small South Carolina town as a Christian. But despite flagging his song, Cody has no ill feelings toward TikTok. Although he says he is concerned about what children, including his four-year-old daughter, will encounter when visiting social media platforms. But I feel like young people who haven't really figured out who they are yet, and they're on these platforms that can really make a big influence on who they are, that, that's what scares me, that they have so much control over that, and they could really force their agenda on the entire world if, if they're all using these platforms, you know. The suppression of religious content on social media platforms is not new. In 2020, Christian music songwriter Sean Foyt blamed Twitter and Instagram for shutting down an account that shared Bible verses about peace, while being faced with a dilemma to attract more listeners, as well truthfully expressing who he is through his music, Cody is clear on one thing, that he will never stop singing lyrics with Christian content. And in more China news, slapping at least 60% tariffs on Chinese imports. That's what former President Trump plans to do if he wins the election. More details coming tonight at 9.30 Eastern on NTD's China in Focus with Tiffany Meyer. Coming up, the hottest ticket in town and maybe the hottest ticket ever. NTD's Dave Martin joins us to discuss why the prices for this Super Bowl are at record highs. Paris gets ready to welcome sports fans from all over the world. The French capital has only about five months left to prepare for the Summer Olympics. More shortly here on NTD News Today. And now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Now, Dave, there was no regular postseason um, or 
regular season NFL action yesterday while we wait for the Super Bowl. So why is there this one week, why is there this change than the usual one week? Yeah, I think it's for you and I as media to talk more about it. I mean, they know it's the biggest spectacle of the year. They want as much media buildup as possible. Now, this week, as the teams arrive, you know, they'll have big media events with the players giving interviews as well. But I also think this gives fans of these teams as much possible to buy their tickets. That's on the secondary market, of course. And then make plans to get to Vegas since this game is always played at a neutral site. Now, I also think it actually helps the Pro Bowl as well. Like you said, there were no playoffs over the weekend, but they did have the Pro Bowl, which is like their all-star game. Now, it was never feasible to do this during the regular season which when it was a tackle football game. I suppose it's possible now that it's a flag football contest, but I think if you had this after the Super Bowl, it would generate even less fan interest. And it kind of struggles as it is compared to the rest of their postseason and even regular season and probably even exhibition games as it is. So regarding those Super Bowl tickets, you reported last week that average ticket price was in the neighborhood of $10,000, which would be a record. Where are they now? Well, as of this morning, if you go to SeatGeek, the lowest ticket price is just under $6,000. I mean, that's the lowest, and that's, of course, way in the back. Now, last year, that was actually around the average ticket price. The highest average ticket price was $7,000. That was set three years ago when Tom Brady and the Bucks beat these Chiefs. But that was done in a stadium that was at one-third capacity due to COVID restrictions. So demand was probably higher in those games. Either way, this is looking like the hottest uh, Super Bowl ticket ever. I think the venue is really the biggest reason why. This is the first time the game is in Vegas, so it's the ultimate combination. Biggest party game in the biggest party town. Plus, San Francisco isn't too far away, so their fans are surely flocking to, the, to this game. Really, you know, with the star power on both these squads, they've got fans everywhere. And I honestly think Taylor Swift being involved with Chief tight end Travis Kelsey brings even more fans in. It's really kind of the perfect storm, I would say. Now, Dave, switching to college basketball, a big weekend was just completed with four top 10 matchups. Now, do any of these top 10 programs stand out? You know, I just talked about how this uh, Kansas team was maybe a bit overrated. Then they go out and had one of the most impressive wins of the year uh, when they beat fourth-ranked Houston at home in a game that really wasn't very close. Still, they need to do this on the road if they're going to be considered a major contender. Now, I wasn't that surprised that Purdue went at Wisconsin. They just need to do this and then the NCAA tournament for them to get into that upper echelon, I think. Now, North Carolina, they had quietly gone on quite a run recently. They had a nice win over Duke Saturday, ditto for Tennessee, which won a Kentucky. I'll say this, Kentucky, Duke, Wisconsin, three top 10 teams. They probably got more work to do if they're going to be considered in that upper echelon. But there's still a month to go before March Madness begins. Well, Dave, always great to have you on. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Thanks to you guys. Paris is about to welcome fans from all over the world for the Summer Olympics. The French capital has only about five months left to prepare and accommodate visitors and athletes. Entity's Andrew Thomas has more on how the city plans to help visitors get around and its menu for the thousands of athletes competing. Paris's public transportation system will be critical for thousands of visitors during the upcoming Summer Olympics. Around 2,000 personnel will help passengers navigate through the capital using AI-supported translation devices. The goal for us in Ile-de-France Mobilite is for them to travel in the best possible conditions and therefore being able to speak to them in as many languages as possible and helping them find their way in Paris is extremely important. The Traduvia device can translate in 16 different languages. As one of the world's leading destinations for international visitors, Paris will keep using the service after the Games. 
Obviously, it's traveler information, and in particular, dynamic traveler information that will be extremely important during the games, as we will sometimes have slightly different routes that will be implemented to reach this or that site, because it is perhaps not the shortest path, but it is the path with the most capacity. Helping visitors get around is important, but the culinary capital will need to feed the athletes too. Charles Guilloy is the executive chef at Sodexo Live. The company will be in charge of delivering meals 24-7 in the athlete's village just north of Paris. The 300-strong team will be tasked with feeding people from 206 countries. When you think that there are 15,000 athletes from 200 delegations, men and women, 35 sport disciplines with breakfast, lunch, dinner, night snacks before they compete, before they train, after they compete, it's a real culinary and logistical challenge to meet the nutritional needs of a high-level athlete and respect their eating habits. This lentil doll is one of 550 dishes that will be served to the competitors at the Paris Olympics. About 40,000 meals will be served. Some 40 different dishes will be offered every day. A bakery will also offer the athletes an opportunity to make their own baguettes. Gilioise says 25% of the ingredients used will be locally sourced. Of course, when coming up with these 550 recipes, we have taken into account the different intolerances and allergies, the ethnic, cultural, and religious cuisines. These are things that we have taken into account, along with gluten-free, lactose-free products, and of course, halal and kosher. The Paris Olympics will begin July 26th and conclude August 11th. The Paralympics will follow from August 28th through September 8th. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Nearly 1,000 sauna lovers raced through a small Estonian town Saturday afternoon. Their goal, to visit as many different saunas as possible. Four-person teams received a map of saunas around the town. They raced from one to another, speeding, spending at least three minutes in each. Teams received a bonus for visiting hot tubs and icy plunge pools. Many participants wore eccentric costumes even while inside the saunas. Mostly it's about having sauna and uh, to visit a lots of lots of sauna in one day. And I think a very uh, big part of it is this, uh, all this uh, being together, also dressing up nicely and uh, also the big party in the evening. So. Really great, great emotions. Uh, we have a lot of saunas to go, and, uh, but it's really awesome, really awesome. Sauna is a lifestyle and you have to love the heat and the coldness and the fun. And the northern way like you did with me in the sauna and the relaxed family time and fun is very, very nice. People attending the event often start their plans six months in advance. The 18 saunas ranged from the traditional wood-lined cabins to a converted tram to an inflatable dome. And one sauna was suspended in the air with a crane. People from 15 countries competed in the race. And a new and rare discovery of tree fossils has opened a window into what the world was like hundreds of millions of years ago. Only four or five fossils that date back to Earth's earliest forests have ever been discovered. According to a study published in the journal Current Biology, 
archaeologists found five tree fossils buried alive by an earthquake 350 million years ago. The co-authors of the study unearthed the first of the ancient trees in 2017 while doing field work in a rock quarry in Canada. One of the spe specimens they discovered is among just a handful of cases in the entire plant fossil record. That record, spanning more than 400 million years, in which a tree's branches and crown leaves are still attached to its trunk. Well, that's all for today's news. Thank you for tuning in. Feel free to reach out to us with news tips or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. We'll be back with more stories tomorrow.